I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. Can you see me any better? I can see you. You might. <laughs> I do kind of like the witness protection look, but. <laughs> uh, I know. Well, do you know what though? The, uh, let's just say shady back alley because witness protection is a bad word in the field that I work in. Those guys don't like that. All right. We'll um, say back alley. Back alley is a much better. <laughs> yeah. I, I, in a previous life, I think I was more comfortable there. So anyway, we'll. <laughs> That's excellent to hear. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for agreeing to do this call. It's really wonderful. So I run events for um, a large number of people and I support a lot of writers um, screenwriters and producers and uh, in addition to the sort of normal technical stuff like how to fund a movie I like to do events where I let people meet experts sometimes they're psychologists who have a who um, have a background in narcissistic personality disorder and psychopathy <laughs> and sometimes they're psychologists who you know help people become more creative but um, you're a particularly interesting person to talk to because so many of the people that I support are creating content about whether whether or not they fully understand it they're creating work about organized crimes when they're talking about gangsters or whether they're talking about mobsters or they're talking about drug cartels so um, let me go ahead and give you a quick introduction just so people have some idea about your background and then with your permission, uh, I'll ask you to sort of talk for just a few seconds about how you found yourself being an expert <laughs> in such an interesting Right, right, okay. So, um, Christian Cipollini is a freelance journalist, an award-winning author, an organized crime historian, and a collector. He's a frequent guest lecturer at universities and a consultant to movie and television producers. He has appeared as a consultant on episodes of Gangsters, America's Most Evil, History Channel series, United Stuff of America, AHC's America Facts versus Fiction, and served as a consultant and location producer on National Geographic's channel, critically acclaimed series Drugs, Inc. You can learn more about um, Christian and his work at www.ganglandlegends.com. And if you haven't had a chance to actually take a look at that site, I strongly urge you to go do that now because he is extremely prolific and he has a, a very interesting body of work. So with that, Christian, do you want to talk a, um, for... <laughs> for a few minutes about how you picked this as a field to be an expert in. Wow. Uh, and thank you uh, for the accolades. Um, really, I'm just a nerdy kid that found his one passion. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, not to bore everybody with it, um, but the backstory is my dad was a narcotics cop. <laughs> and one of my best friends, a strange father, was a drug mule. And uh, I like to think I had the best of both worlds. I had no idea and no real big interest in organized crime per se. But dad was uh, big into history and loved watching The Godfather. And he would take, I mean, we were kids and he took us to see Scarface. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that was building. I always knew I sucked at everything except writing. So I just didn't know one day... They would come together, jump ahead. Um, I was moonlighting as an entertainment journalist when I went back to college and realized, oh, I can apply this stuff. And one thing led to another, and that fire was always there. I had, um, in my early 20s, consumed every book on organized crime, politics, economics, realized it all ties in. And yet... A lot of it's, um, for lack of a better term, bullshit, and history keeps regurgitating this. So I hit 40 years old and decided I was going to straighten some of it out. 
I know that sounds cocky, but it was just, I'm, I'm like, I'm not good at a lot of things, but this was my calling. So here we are. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a couple books under my belt and every once in a while a TV show will call me and have me go on or, but uh, I'll speaking engagements. I love it. It's, it's my thing. It's the only thing I'm really, I don't know, fiery about well, because it's, it's still relevant. What's funny when I first talked to you, you mentioned that, um, that people actually contact you, people who are in prison for organized crime contact you because they want to talk to somebody who understands the business quote unquote and uh, understands the life that they lived and you're in a position to actually tell their story in a way that other people might not understand they they, they can start and tell the, they can tell you about their lives and tell tell them uh, tell you about their story and they're not starting at ground zero because you you haven't bought into a lot of the myths about what it's like to work in the mafia what it's like to work in the mob you have a you have the grounding to understand the stories that they tell you that, that uh, I'll say this and I was going to say this at some point, but I'm uh, perfect timing. I'll start with it. Now there are three sides to every story. Mm -hmm. uh, truth is stranger than fiction. It's never, he said, she said black and white. Mm -hmm. In this case, you've got the quote unquote bad guy. You've got the good guy. No, mm -hmm. there are many shades of gray in between. And what I try to do, I took from my peers, the people I look up to, this new wave of, of my um, colleagues, we all have our specialties and bounce off each other. But ultimately, I think I can speak for all of them. Our goal is to find that needle in the haystack, that hazy little bit of truth in between it all. But yeah, the bad guys will contact me sometimes. The good guys will contact me. I, I don't care what you do in life. I think this applies to anything. You have to have some credibility. Mm -hmm. If for once in my life I was going to have some credibility, it was this. And that's, mm -hmm. I made that decision. I'm like, you have to. Mm -hmm. You get respect, you give it. Mm -hmm. Not judging necessarily on any of it. I just know you've got to get all the sides of it to put the picture together. We'll get into that stuff, but that's kind of how, that's my mantra, that's my philosophy on it. So one of the things that I found interesting in our very first um, chat was you mentioned that there's a, a huge misunderstanding about, especially about the United, organized crime inside the United States. And you specifically address the fact that people think the mob and the mafia um, are exactly the same things and also that a lot of times people don't understand the why um, people chose to join become organized criminals join the mob join the mafia join the drug cartels become members of gangs um, why immigrant communities in the past often chose to set up these sort of second secondary economies and to build lives based upon um, cr criminal activity rather than sort of quote unquote, um, joining the melting pot and becoming, you know, quote unquote, fine upstanding citizens. So do you, would you want to talk for a few minutes about sure. uh, yeah. organized crime in America? Um, particularly in the United States. Um, now, uh, I should preface by saying to my expertise mm -hmm. uh, is mostly focused on prohibition era, um, organized crime in general narcotics and then the 1970s so i but 
all of us in this field, we have to know a little bit about everything and why it all is relevant to each other. That said, um, there is a misconception that the word mob and mafia are synonymous. They are not. I, if I can make anything blatantly clear, talking about particularly New York City, Chicago, the places where it really started, 1900s, um, the mob was a unified force of multi-ethnic criminals. The mafia was an Italian bloodline that was part of this. There were Jewish gangsters, Irish gangsters, Italian gangsters. Most of the Germans, white Anglo-Saxon, most of the Irish at the time had already assimilated into society. So the lowest on the totem pole were um, Jewish and Italian, African-Americans, you know, keep going down. The mob talking 1920s, 1930s, was the loose term for when these guys all joined up together. They um, mm -hmm. looked at the world sort of like the industrialists did, realizing, wait, if we just stick in our ethnic groups, how are we going to make any money? That's where they failed. Why mm -hmm. don't we work together? So mafia was an Italian bloodline thing. They were part of it, the mm -hmm. greater mob. But the mob really was predominantly at that time Jewish and Italian guys. And uh, you throw in a few Irish and there were some, there were some African American guys in, that were associated with it. They were all part of it, mm -hmm. particularly in the hub of New York. Mm -hmm. Is it the case that they chose to become, to become organized criminals because uh, they were looking for a way to generate revenue in a, in a time where no one would give them jobs. So they, they came here and they either set up their own business and their own culture that could protect them and then engage in organized crime because it was something that they could do and make a living at. We had talked about this. Look, there's mm -hmm. always free will. Okay, not every immigrant that comes to this country is, mm -hmm. is going to be a criminal because they're poor. Mm -hmm. However, economics, cultural um, parameters that were set up at that time, at any time uh, where an organized crime group rises, that there are reasons for it and it comes down to economics. For example, again, and I'm reverting to my particular expertise, mm -hmm. um, these kids are 14 years old and they're watching these old school Italians that were already here since 1890 preying on each other, but they're making money. Mm -hmm. The wave of particularly the individuals I, I cover a lot, um, the Lucky Lucianos, Al Capones, Meyer Lansky's, Bugsy Siegel, Frank Costello types, they saw it as kids like, hey, we want that but we're not going to do it that way. We don't have any other options. We don't, you know, school, some of them made it through school, some didn't, but there really weren't a lot of options. Yeah, you could go work in a mill or on the docks. And these guys, there was a narcissism to some of them. There had to be where they said, no, I want to drive a Cadillac and I don't want to do that. So mm -hmm. I'll run a floating dice game. And then we'll all get together and protect each other, steal some liquor. Yeah, it's, I know I'm across the board here with everything, but 
that's basically what happened. Um, it, I just think for anyone to understand the major change in American organized crime really happened in 1931, and I'm not going to get into all of it, but it was when these young guys decided the old way doesn't work. What was the old way specifically? The old way was Italian criminals coming here and setting up shop, preying on their own, only working with their own. Mm-hmm. And uh, the young guys put an end to it. Um, mm-hmm. Basically killed a lot of them off in, in one year's time uh, mm-hmm. to change. It was, it was the most, to me, it was the catalyst for the ultimate change in uh, society in America in regards to crime. It really was. Again, I'm not going to go into all of it, but let's just say 1931 changed everything. Wow, that's amazing. Is it the case that um, another thing that we briefly talked about was that organized crime is a different thing than um, standard standard crimes in the sense, you know, sort of um, smaller crimes or an, in, an individual crime. Um, and it's also a different thing than the kind of out of control, you know, murder of um, of a uh, mass murderer or a serial killer, you know, which might be emotionally driven. Organized crime it really is run a lot more like a business and has uh, and has a lot of um, a lot in common with a business. There's only there's a limit to how crazy you can be because you got to work with other people. Is is but they, <laughs> that's yeah. it. That's true. Mm-hmm. And when there is a downfall, it's because you, you have to remember, though, too, um, for as much as the organized criminals, especially during the Depression era that set the stage for later things, if there was a moment, in my opinion, if there was mm-hmm. a time in American history that will never again be repeated, mm-hmm. that was the closest to honor among thieves and something that actually had a silver lining. And I say that because American business learned a lot from what they did Mm -hmm. at that time. It was that 1930 to 1940, but why did it end? Mm -hmm. Because the crazies that inevitably are part of an organized crime group, the larger it becomes, the more bad apples Mm -hmm. and let's just say human resources departments in the mob, uh, you know, aren't, you know, weren't what they are today. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So an- another thing that, um, another thing that uh, you talked about was the fact that, uh, you, and you did, I think you just touched on it briefly about the seventies. Is it the case that um, these days, most organized crime or a lot of organized crime is kind of a worldwide a worldwide business, just like we have multinational corporations, we have multinational um, crime syndicates that really do operate around the world, country, you know, throughout, you know, hundreds, dozens of countries and um, uh, with hundreds of branches. To, to start off, mm-hmm. organized crime exists for one reason. That is to make money. Mm -hmm. Their market is all supply and demand. And Mm -hmm. the demand is there. It's the chicken and the egg Mm -hmm. argument can go on forever. But organized crime in any era, any place does not exist 
to beat people up, to kill people. To, that's not why it ever existed. It existed to make illicit money because mm -hmm. there was a demand. The ebb and flow, the ebb and flow of, of society and culture and politics dictates who the next top dog will be. I get asked a lot, what happened to the American Mafia? Trust me, it's still there, but it's mm -hmm. nothing like it was 15 years ago, 50 years ago. It mm -hmm. never will. Right mm -hmm. now, you can say the um, Mexican uh, drug cartels are the top dog. Some people argue terrorist groups are organized criminals. Mm -hmm. There will always be somebody waiting in the wings. No one, like the Roman Empire, nothing's going to stay on top forever. And it all comes down to the natural progression of society. Mm. That's why. But it's everywhere. Right now, cyber criminals in um, Russia or, again, the, the, the narco dealers in Mexico. One time, Colombia was the, you know, during the Pablo Escobar years, Mexico took over. And it's not, this doesn't happen overnight. There's mm -hmm. power vacuums. And these groups are always there. Sometimes they're working with other ones, being bred up to it mm -hmm. uh you know what street gangs on top right now what prison gangs on top right now it all changes um so it is everywhere it is a problem that that i, I think don't look back at history why it was even created i mean we could talk forever why does it even exist is it just poor kids or is because they're put down is it because there's no opportunities it's a lot of variables mm -hmm. but i don't think we've ever really solve the problem which reminds me about the war on drugs is that someone had asked we'll, we'll get into that too when um somebody has asked and i think it's a really good question one of the things i wanted to talk about what I, i'm often shocked that considering it's a pretty ubiquitous crime people don't actually know what money laundering is and they don't actually know what i mean they don't actually know sort of the 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 types of crime organized crime that like you mentioned cybercrime, you know, which, you know, can be stealing people's credit cards and stealing people's identities. It can also be moving money from bank account to bank account. I mean, there's, can you talk for a few minutes about how organized chain, uh, organized crime has kind of gone up market in the sense that it's not, it's no longer just trying to get drugs across the border. I mean, it's actually graduated to being much more sophisticated and much more technical and technological um, and much more in a strange way visible than it was in the past. Like, Money laundering is a perfect example. You buy it. One of the reasons that, that money laundering works so well is that it's possible to take money from drug trafficking or all these other things and put it in a perfectly visible hotel or put it in a perfectly visible, um, you know, another business that people see all day, every day, that they, you wouldn't know that it was a crime, crime funded. So can you talk a little right. bit? And for any of you that, that, that don't know, um, the word affront, you know, something's a front. That's what it means. It's a, it's a front. Uh, you could be a bakery mm -hmm. that um, has two loaves of bread. And you're like, how the hell does this place stay in business? Because it's just simply used to launder the money. Any criminal organization has to clean the money that it's receiving from illicit business to hide it from uh, Uncle Sam, you know, every group has to do money laundering. And what that simply means is you clean the money. 
you wash it through a legitimate business. Mm -hmm. You own a high rise. Somehow you, all your drug money, you, you put in like it was invested into that or something. It's all ways to, it's a facade. It's a front to mask where the money came from. Is that kind of like when they first set up casinos, one of the things that was good for money laundering is because when you wanted to launder a bunch of money, you would just have the person, you just have one of your operatives who had money from sex trafficking or drug running or whatever. They would just go into the casino and lose the money. And it was anonymous. The money would just come in. So, and the casino could say, well, you know, we just earned this money. We just earned it because somebody came in and gambled and they lost it because there's no tracking of the money that was being spent. So there's a huge, so you can do that with a, a, a pizza restaurant that doesn't actually sell pizzas, you know, or maybe it sells right. pizzas, but really, you know, on the books, it's selling thousands of them. It's the most popular pizza place ever, you know, and, and, and it can be done on a global international level. Mm-hmm. It's just mind boggling. Um, and people can argue, wow, why didn't these individuals go into wall street? They're so mm-hmm. good at this. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's the million dollar question. Why does anybody do what they do? But yeah, mm-hmm. it's smarter. And it always is. They always try to stay a step ahead of society and law enforcement internationally. And a lot of times, I still argue they did. They mm-hmm. were. I mean, it's 50 years later and people like me are still figuring out like, wow, they, you put it all together. They did outsmart everybody doing some things. Mm-hmm. It, it's still today, but you have to clean the money or mm-hmm. you're going to get caught. I mean, they do generally anyway, but that money laundering is across the board used for, I, I don't care um, uh, how big or small you are. It, it's pretty much you clean the money. Is there, um, we were going to talk um, briefly about the, um, there are major conflicts that, and I think you touched on them just briefly. You talked about Mexico and the drug cartels. And I think if I'm not mistaken there, are there five drug cartels and they have very different characteristics and they are headquartered. They actually are headquartered um, uh, in Mexico to the extent that anything that's multinational and criminal can have a headquarter. Can you talk a little bit about how come they're on top at the moment? Is it because they're more efficient at generating revenue from their activities? Is it because, um, they're more, they're more coordinated. Uh, can you talk just a little bit about that? Because it's, it's it's interesting to me that they uh, should be so successful, quote unquote. It uh, wow, you could go into the whole again economic and cultural stratosphere mm-hmm. of um, mm-hmm. of Latin America and what's happened and everything from the World Bank's role in this. And I mean, really, there's a lot of again. It goes back to the why does this mm-hmm. happen? But Mexico was able to produce opium and um, bring in cocaine from other places when it was more difficult in the mid 20th century to get it than from Europe and Asia where that used to be the sources. So, I mean, this is really, I'm really, you know, narrowing this down to the brief version, but um, eventually they were bound to rise to the top. There's mm-hmm. desperation. There is um, the uh, social structures basically let it happen because there was so much corruption anyway mm-hmm. in the government that people can't trust the government, which was a problem here with ethnic groups at, mm-hmm. at the turn of the 20th century. All those factors. 
they could produce a lot of stuff themselves then. They didn't even need to just be a throughway for other people. Mm -hmm. And of course, typically the United States is the biggest consumer mm -hmm. to the tune of about 80%. And cartels get vicious. I mean, they have, Mexico has their own headache with, with, with that issue. But again, uh, for, for anyone to, to comprehend what the, the root moral to the story is, if there is a demand, there will be a supply. It is who adapted more. When the American mafia and mob started to disintegrate for various reasons, somebody real close to hop right in there. And, and today, somebody will be the next one tomorrow. When you, I think you bring up sort of an interesting topic in the sense that in Russia, they also have um, organized crime is very efficient there. And I, I have a degree in economics. When I was at UCLA at the time, they had a big thing. They were talking a great deal about the Russian black market. So it was a, the, the economy wasn't able to fulfill the needs of people who wanted everything from toilet paper to meat and sugar. So you created this whole black market that everybody used like every literally every person in the society would use this black market you know all the time or several times a year and there was the government couldn't stop it couldn't control it there was a huge demand that was drawing fun, funding money funneling money to this thing is it the case that whenever you create a black market um and whenever you create a society where the government cannot cannot or will not um uh, enforce laws? Are you automatically cr creating an environment that makes um, organized crime more likely to succeed? Simple answer, absolutely yes. Uh, look at um, the mafia's birth in Sicily. Mm -hmm. It was because the government there was a, a joke. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, mm -hmm. when, when there's a power vacuum, a government is taken down or falls or a shift in in the political polar opposite spectrum you're opening the doors when the economics affect the majority of people you're mm -hmm. going to create a black market you're going to create there's already an illicit market you're just opening it to more um uh products mm -hmm. uh again the the sicilian mafia was created as a protection for these people now power intoxicates mm -hmm. so what happened to the sicilian mafia is that you know they preyed on their own then it wasn't no longer just a force of tough guys to protect the villages they you know they preyed on their own they come over here they preyed on their own until there was shifts and transitions for the better and even at that Power corrupts. I don't care if you're in government or you're, you know, a mob boss. It's power corrupts. So, so in, in Russia, when the Soviet Union came to me, oh, yay, everybody, yay. Yeah. Okay, well, here you've got a big power vacuum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not a political strategist and I'm not a psychologist, but there's enough of that um, woven into why what I study exists that I can tell you when you take down a Saddam Hussein without mm -hmm. a plan and, and the Soviet mm -hmm. Union falls without a plan, you're going to have bad shit happening. Mm -hmm. Okay. And criminal groups are going to love it. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying history keeps repeating itself across 
the world. I mean, we're just not learning. I don't care what, what political side you come from. There are truisms to this. Mm -hmm. If you don't like organized crime, you better look back at why it's always existing in the first friggin' place. Well, and I think right, that's my little rant for today. No, but I think you make it, you make an interesting point that the fact that if you don't have a nation governed by laws, then it's going to be might, might makes right. And the guy that, the guy that generates the revenue calls the shots. And the guy that, the guy that brings force to the table calls the shots. If you don't have laws that are enforced, if people don't trust the laws to be enforced, if people don't feel safe going to, don't feel safe going to police officers. If you, you know, look you, at the inner city. I've, we've dealt with this. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, it's great. Nobody wants to look out their window. I mean, even me, I had to really meet some people and, mm -hmm. and find things out that you're like, wow, yeah, boy, in my little suburban life, I thought I knew it all. No, get around mm -hmm. the world. There are things that I, have, I still can't even fathom mm -hmm. that colleagues have um, seen and just – it's it's more it's not that simple it, again the war on drugs is a big 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 one that you know that ties into this that ultimately you're going to have um a supply and demand problem mm -hmm. and until you end that mm -hmm. or, or say the majority of your people are lower class mm -hmm. in terms of economics Oh, your society is going to be ravaged with organized crime. That, that, that's an inevitable outcome. Right. And the other thing is the, the notion that it, I think it's always the notion that it, it's going to happen to somebody else or it's going to impact somebody else. But, but the truth is that the problem with organized crime is it continues until it is stopped. Right. And like eventually you have to actually make it stop to make it stop because if there's no in law enforcement, there's not, there's, there's nothing to stop it from its growth. Nothing slows it down except um, in sensible enforcement of laws and real life judges and real life courts and real, it's the only way to actually make the, um, the business stop being profitable is what it comes down to. How do you make the business unprofitable? You know? Right. And that, again, if there's another million dollar question, that's it. Because mm -hmm. it, you know, the world is run on um, cash. What, what do you do? That's what, I mean, it makes the world go around and there's always something. And again, you get into all the variables of, of um, drug abuse and, and things that people want. Like you said, bread in Russia, you know, mm -hmm. wow. It, it's a whole Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love this stuff and I don't want to bore everybody with all, you know, all of this, but it's definitely something that we don't have the answers for. Mm -hmm. um, now that's the really dark sides of it all. There are, <laughs> there are side, other sides to it. Side actually, one of the things you have, you're a collector. And I find that really interesting is that um, you correct, you collect um, memorabilia and images that um, uh, reflect turning points or reflect um, uh, key moments in the history of uh, organized crime and such that, you know, sort of every, um, you collect, um, things that tell a story. So do you want to talk for a few minutes about the things that you collect and what makes them interesting to sure. you? Sure. Um, I, first I, yeah, I have to blame a couple of my good friends and colleagues that had written books before me and were really into this. And somehow I, I got hooked on, um, scouring auctions to, to find original crime scene photos, press photos, mug shots, 
uh, again, I found something I was kind of good at, but I blame them because they were always doing this. And when I caught on, I'm like, Oh, I want to do this too. But what we, what I found learned from them is a, a press photo, say from 1930 was the photo tells a story, but the back with the press notes, the editor's notes and what it's, you can learn so much and put more together of a, of a picture. When someone to asked me once how I write a book, my, my process, and I told them, I said, well, I usually start with a photograph and, and go from there. And, and I remember him telling you, he was a friend of mine, but he said, that's like, you work in reverse. Don't people put their photographs in last? I said, well, I don't know. I said, I always start with the visuals. And if it sparks me to go, study and find the clues and da, da, da. so yeah there's a lot so i collect that stuff it's kind of addicting these are just some uh so can you talk, for, you talk for a few minutes about just for a second about what you find interesting about each one as you sort of click uh, well all of these I, I try to these are just a few that across the spectrum of um eras and types mm -hmm. like uh, wanted posters for drug lords old crime trials uh some of these photos are really uh um so this is like 1934 so are are, are you that one you just showed oh, me i've got them all over like this was an opium bust this was a member of a murder inc in 1940 this was uh whitey bulger's wanted poster wow this was a 1932 lineup of chicago and new york gangsters this is uh Salvatore Spital. These are New Orleans gangsters. They all had that kind of, I want Lucky Luciano. This is all uh, stuff that, uh, um, of course, dead bodies. This was what made um, it interesting to me. It all tells a story, all of it. Um, besides, it's cool to collect, especially the really rare ones. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like moments captured in time, and you can really glean a lot. Mm -hmm. And back then, you got to remember too, particularly in the early 20th century, newspapers and media were just as uh, flamboyant as they are today and embellishing. Mm -hmm. However, you would know down to the color of shoes and the cigarette stains on a guy's hand. That's how much detail they would put into articles or the back of these photos. So it really paints that greater picture of even personalities, if you will. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I think I think it's helped me, I don't know, a hundredfold mm -hmm. in what I do in putting the the, the puzzle together. Just, so, you, just being able to anchor to anchor things to to an actual to an actual moment where something actually happened. I saw several of those pictures were sort of set in 1931, 1932. Mm -hmm. so they are actually documenting the change from, and the, the people in the pictures were young men. They're like late 20s, early 30s. So they're the ones that are coming up and ch changing it from being, changing it into the, to the, to the um, later, more egalitarian mob, you know, as opposed right. to, <laughs> as opposed to a, the- A majority of my collection is that era. Mm -hmm. It, it mm -hmm. is, um, though I found, I get bored very easily and mm -hmm. I ventured into other stuff. And plus it helps. I have to keep all of the people in my field have to keep up on everything, even if it's not our focus mm -hmm. specialty. 
because yeah, mm -hmm. once in a while, if a magazine or website contacts me and says, Hey, just tell me about whatever happened, you know, in this trial mm -hmm. the other day. And you kind of have to know what's going on, uh, mm -hmm. to be able to answer this stuff. So I end up collecting things related to even contemporary. So but, do you, when you, when you actually, if I could ask you to do me a favor, there's a thing that lets you return control to me. I don't I'm Oh Yeah. Uh, where, where was that at? I know we did that before. Yeah, I think it might be down at the bottom where it says participants and then you just yep. click my name and then there's an option there. Yeah, that I remember. Don't worry. I got it. There you go. So could you talk, um, for a few seconds about, um, the, when you're working, I know that you work with a lot of, um, you've worked with a lot of producers and you've actually, um, helped those producers and writers and screenwriters um, sort of firm up their work so that it's um, both more interesting and more accurate. Can you talk about, since you're a writer yourself, how does that usually work? Is it the case that people send you, you know, co contact you and say, hi, I'd like you, know, to, to, you to, I'd like you to give me notes on my um, project, or is it the case that um, you come on board before they start writing and they ask you history, uh, the you know history of um, organized crime and the mafia, so that you do research, and then you sort of give them a primer, and then they start writing. So, like, how do you usually? It's, work? it's a really good question. It, it's been a little of both. Mm -hmm. uh, there are times where, uh, for example, um, a television documentary show is already the series already been in existence. They have an episode, and they hear, mm -hmm. they find me, say, oh, mm -hmm. you know, he would be good for this one. And they'll, they'll pose the questions that they'd like to ask and want to know some insight or how they might rewrite mm -hmm. some of it or get rid of some of it because it's, it's like, they'll ask me sometimes, you know, is this really a myth? Is this crap? You know, do we get rid of this? Mm -hmm. uh, other times I'll be consulted for someone's book, be it fiction mm -hmm. or nonfiction. Um, mm -hmm. Just asking for some authenticity, uh, be it, a historical uh, thing or a person's personality mm -hmm. that I try to cover all that. If it's, you know, in my area of mm -hmm. my realm of, of expertise, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody's trying to create a character and you really want to give it some authenticity, I don't care if you're talking about a, mm -hmm. a street gang member or a mafioso or whatever. Yeah. I get asked that kind of stuff. I've even been asked to to find criminals for for some shows well, that were. I was going to say that wasn't that was actually my next question. It's it's I know it's the case that um, as you mentioned, police officers or um, reach out to you and, and uh, criminals reach yeah. out to you. Um, and I'm sure that you've ended up. Uh, I mean, sometimes that content probably works its way into an article, or sometimes it works it, its way is background for a book. Um, uh, do you ever think about writing biographies or or a whole books talking about um, featuring interviews for those kinds of for those kinds of folks? In other words, when you create your own work, is it the case that you're creating books that people can use as reference manuals or reference guides? Ah, that's a really good one, Nancy. Um, <laughs> I like to think of it. I, I, a little bit of all of that. Uh, my, my first book 
Mm-hmm. I, I, briefly, just my first book was something I happened upon that no one else had really written much on um, mm-hmm. uh, about Detroit's 70s, uh, the drug trade with African-Americans and Italians and the ones who were working together. And it, there was a hitman that was involved. It was, that to me was just, it was a mind-blowing story that, wow, he was like the James Bond of hitmen and nobody outside of Detroit seems to know who this guy was. Mm-hmm. But then my second book, Lucky Luciano, there's been a, a gazillion books written about him. It's just, I was heartbroken as a, a 20, 30-year-old to find out a lot of it was, or no, some of it was wrong, some of it was regurgitated, and some of it was almost on point. I just made it a mission to get the guy's story straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's been dead for, before I was born, so I couldn't interview him. But it's amazing how many relatives of his associates did come out of the mm-hmm. woodwork to give me stuff. Mm-hmm. And then my third book, Murder, Inc., most of those people are dead. But there were people who were related and things and they can give me that. Today, mm-hmm. if I wrote something, I get, I, yeah, maybe like, or if you're asking like what I do, like somebody's biography straight up that's alive i can't say much right now but let's just say there's yeah there i wasn't going to but i've got something up my sleeve and i'm not telling yet but um yeah something big there's one that and i've been asked to do some i just haven't had time the comic book series that i did Mm -hmm. totally took me away from the other stuff now that that's done Mm -hmm. i might can you just give, can you give me a quick, like a thumbnail description of Murder, Inc.? I think it's, a, it's got such an interesting name, but I don't think many people know exactly what Murder, Inc. was and why it was the, called that. The press in 1940 came up with a cl- clever name called Murder, Inc. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, early in 1940, a new DA in New York came into power and uh, one thing led to another and he realized, oh shit, there's about a hundred unsolved murders over the last decade and they're all attributed to some guys working out of a candy store in Brooklyn. And it turned out they realized it was basically the on-call enforcement arm of the United States greater mob. Wow. They could call travel around and there were five main guys and a broader spectrum of associates. But this also ties into our earlier mention of sociopath versus psychopath. Mm -hmm. If there was any moment in mob history of the 20th century that there were a couple guys I would deem borderline serial killer, it was Murder, Inc. Really? Oh, um, yeah, yeah. it's, It's fun and creepy and all these things to study that. In fact, I think I was in a dark place. It was almost like I was a character actor, I guess. <laughs> when I was doing that one, and some of my colleagues were even worried. They're like, dude, you're like, it was, a, it was hard to write and so many, so many people to get their little anecdotes. And then you're like, wow, some of these guys enjoyed their work way too much. Yep, I've had that experience. You got to be careful. I remember um, watching that, uh, the... I can't remember the name of the movie, um, but the movie where the guy decides that he's going to go to farmland and interview these two killers that went into a house and murdered a bunch of people. And he was a writer. Oh, Capote. Yeah, Capote. Capote. And it's like, you could totally just see, like, 
watching that, I was like, what a mistake. You're going to be so sorry you got involved because you're going to climb in these people's heads and you're going to be, you can't get them in, out of your head when you get them in your head. It's like it, and the voice. No, you can't. It is. Um, I, I've said this though, in defense of what um, my, my colleagues and peers and I do, uh, you either do this 100% or don't do it. There, there is no in between. Um, and I, maybe that applies to everything in life. It just, I, I love it, but yeah, I mean, it's exhilarating and scary sometimes. And I'm talking about these guys have been dead, but I mean, I was there. It was like, wow, this, this is dark sometimes. And you're mm -hmm. caught when you're writing, you're in it, but how it pays off is if anyone gleans anything from this today, get some authenticity out of what some of this is like, where it really comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. You're going to get some borderline, really sinister people in with right. even just your typical CEO type of sociopath who happens to be in the mob. It's like real life. And I do this because I love to know what makes people tick, whether you're the cop, the killer, the money man. I don't, I want to know it all. Well, you know, what's interesting is it, it's, it's funny because they're totally, again, I've interviewed dangerous people before and and things take that weird turn and you're just like, well, now I know something I don't want to know. <laughs> you can't unsee and unhear <laughs> something. Actually. <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I did not know this, this thing that I now know. And, but, and the other thing is that, um, well, I'm, I just put it this way. I'm really glad you're the one doing it. Not me because I would, it's like, I imagine there's times when you, and people will sometimes say something and then regret that they said it. And that's not a, such a good thing, you know, cause they, they, it's like now you know something and it's like oh well you know and they don't want to necessarily when, the, the, when they're talking about it they're moved to speak about it and they want to tell the truth because people are driven to but then later they think to themselves i'm not sure that i want you to know that and those are the kind of people that solve their problems by killing folks it it, it happens and but the, it goes into uh, again okay uh i will show a real i have a minute long little intro i did Actually, the thing is, it doesn't. It won't. It won't replay video. But if you, what I can do is, if you send a link to me, I can send it out to everyone oh, yeah. after the call. Or if, actually, if it's on your website, tell people to go to your website. I will put it on there. I did. Um, this was a favor for a professor friend of mine uh, that taught a psychology class, actually, and I made a little minute long video that mm -hmm. pretty much, in a nutshell, covers the contemporary distinction of sociopath versus psychopath mm -hmm. and and with organized crime you'll see again murder inc is kind of it's an anomaly within it but there's differences and uh again mm -hmm. my specialty isn't like serial killers i have uh, some really great friends that that's their thing like the, they'll do mm -hmm. the capote thing I, I encounter and and talk to some close stuff but that's not necessarily my the psychopath I'm more okay, you're, not, you're not your objective is not to research psychopaths that are members of the mob. You know what? Honestly, though, the only reason why not is um, it's not uh, my talent, if you will, just seems to be more towards this. Whereas I know I have colleagues and friends that are so much more on point with mm -hmm. doing something on an Ed Gein or, or a Bundy or whatever. They're yeah. they're just masterful and i'm not step treading on them because they're really good at it and mm -hmm. i hope i'm really good at what i do 
I think you're focused that you have a lot of, I think you have a lot of insight and focus into the economics, which drive, which drive the business and also some of the political aspects of it. So, you know, somebody else has to deal with the psychology part, you know, like, oh right. yeah, he turns out he's a, so, it turns out he's malignant narcissist. Good to know. <laughs> so I, I want to take a moment as since we're, we're sort of we're, um, reaching the end. I'd like to, if you have questions that you want to uh, make sure that we answer, now's a good time to um, send them to me by email. And I mentioned that earlier, so I'm going to check to see if I've got um, some uh, questions to answer. And um, we do have that one too about the right. war on drugs. Right. Let me go ahead and actually um, go ahead and bring that up really quickly. I have to make my computer do that thing it does. So um, actually, you have the questions. Do you want to go ahead and um, go through them since you're on your computer? Well, I kind of summed all of them up, and I'm going to paraphrase. There was a question that, again, to paraphrase, basically, particularly in Mexico, they had asked, "Would uh, how do you solve this problem of, of drugs in mm -hmm. the um, narco trafficking? Mm -hmm. um, so as vague as that, they were like four questions and they were really good, but all basically the answer is this. I don't know how you'll ever solve it. And here's why mm -hmm. historically going back to the turn of the 20th century, we have tried to put handcuffs on social problems, mm -hmm. be it mental illness, be it drug addiction, be it prostitution. These are things in my opinion and others, you can't put behind bars, metaphorically or physically speaking. Mm -hmm. We've never appropriately dealt with the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in Mexico, you've got an economic explosion for people there because of the United States' ravenous hunger for dope. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you fix the problem in Mexico? You got to friggin' fix the problem here. Mm -hmm. I don't Mexico. They're people. They're dealing with it because there's a demand here already. Anyone that doesn't want to hear this, mm -hmm. they're out of their mind. And anyone, if you're for those of you filmmakers, if you're creating a character or a storyline that regards this, know it that. Yeah, some people, particularly in the 80s, got into the uh, helping out the Medellin cartel because, yeah, it was exciting to get on. I, have, I can fly a plane and, I, you know, I'm not killing anyone. I can fly dope. There are people who live for that adrenaline that get into this. <laughs> but ultimately, the big problem is, hey, I can make money. I'm not making any money growing tomatoes in Sinaloa. I can make a lot of money if I run this meth up through. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. How do you solve the problem? Where's it all going here? Mm -hmm. We need to solve why the, in this, again, I, I don't, not to get off mm -hmm. on a tangent, but it dates back to when we, heroin was a magic drug and it really was, but they thought that was curing morphine addicts. It mm -hmm. wasn't. Then all of a sudden they make it illegal. You've got a hundred 200, 300,000 people in New York alone addicted in 1914, and they just say, oh, you can't have it anymore. Mm -hmm. Look at what happened. Mm -hmm. It's 2018, mm -hmm. and we've still got so much of it. We, we haven't even come close to it. Well, I think, you know, there's some, there's, um, some 
you know, the thing is it's sex trafficking, you know, or, uh, which is a huge, which is a huge um, business is another, is hard to handle because that's not even something you can legalize or medically treat. It's just, there's, this is, there is an appetite for people who want, for lack of a better term, to hurt people. So, you know, it's, it's a, it, as you point out, it's a very difficult, a very, a very difficult, um, a very difficult thing to handle. Um, and actually, one of the questions that comes up, um, I think is kind of interesting is, do you anticipate is a net, it's, do you anticipate the next um, big rise of a mafia to be the 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 Russian cartels or the Russian? Because they seem to be. You mentioned cyber currency, and there's a whole bunch of other things that they're working on. They seem to be kind of everywhere at once at the moment. You mentioned terrorism as an example. I mean, they they really are one of the groups that actually can get weapons to people right. in the world and actively does do that. So. Are they sort of on the rise in terms of, are they likely to be that which supplants the Mexican drug cartels in terms of the space they take up in the news? Hmm. Well, what the news ends up covering or doesn't, uh, boy, that's anybody's guess. Uh, but ultimately, if I, mm-hmm. if I had to pick, I, I mean, whatever narco cartels from whatever region of the world exist are always going to be the steady like if you were playing the stock market and you'd be like Mm -hmm. what do i take that's that steady one i'm gonna take the drug cartels because Mm -hmm. they're the ones again until we deal with the reason why narcotics are abused or illegal or whatever side you're on but Mm -hmm. it's a problem needs dealt with you're always going to have them there are steady Mm -hmm. now with cyber crime that's just even going to get more advanced and mm-hmm. right now, yeah, the, the Russians are definitely one of the top ones involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and with uh, terrorist groups, that's anybody's guess. So what else they'll get into, sure, there's weapons and, dr- of course, they fund themselves with drugs, which, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's, I, I know some, I'm tr- it's like my brain's ready to explode because there are so many dynamic factors involved mm-hmm. in this. But if I really had to pick what you said, the three, your sure bet are narco traffickers. Mm-hmm. And then who knows what's going to happen with the cyber criminal groups versus the international terrorist groups that are funding or supplying. Well, you may have something new entirely pop up. Well, you actually just you brought to mind the fact that there's, um, and we had a question about that as well, um, Bitcoin. In other words, is Bitcoin being used as a way for people to move money around anonymously? If, huh, great question. Here's the simple answer to all of this. If something is created or already exists that can be exploited and used, it's going to be. Mm-hmm. It's going to be by anyone who sees a demand and a supply situation for that. Mm-hmm. Whether you're stealing somebody's identity or, again, their gas card, mm-hmm. or you know, somebody wants fentanyl, you're going to find a way to do it. Uh, there's going to be someone finds a way to supply that demand, whether the demand is for them personally or for a market. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's um, again, and I'm not a, I'm not an economist. I, it's not my study. I'm not a professor. No, you're doing a pretty good impression of one. <laughs> it, well, it t- it's what I learned. Of, it ties mm-hmm. 
so much into it because again, for all of you to understand, this is all based on money. Again, mm-hmm. crime groups don't exist just to kick the shit out of each other mm-hmm. or people. It's that is how they police themselves. That is how they deal with hierarchy and structure and rules within their, themselves and competition. That's mm-hmm. how they deal with it. But ultimately, it's about making money. I don't, you know, I don't care if you're on the street corner slinging something or you're the head of a global corporation that's a front. You're about making money and survival. Where that comes from, that's a whole nother, uh, you know, social art. Uh, so do you think it's the case that if, in the word, so we've had two people ask, would legalizing drugs in the U.S., and this is a huge question to ask you, and I'm very politically charged, but would legalizing drugs in the U.S. change the power of the, of the drug cartels? If, if I could go to, if I could say that I was an addict and go to um, my pharmacy and get medical-grade heroin, mm-hmm. um, would that make it so that there would less of a, a much smaller drug cartel because there's a much smaller market of people who would actually buy it under the table or is it or or is it the case that um people the business would still exist because people don't even want to have to go to the doctor in order to get that prescription you've covered two of the big ones right there it's a double-edged sword um i think we're still too new even with the marijuana to to really know what's going to happen but sure will if you take away someone's market share even pieces of it you're diminishing their their market uh, their business but uh to even get bigger and on this if for example marijuana if you don't think the big pharma companies, quote unquote, legit, aren't chomping at the bit if they don't already have a way to own this, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's going to make it harder for the average person. And yes, it's expensive. <clears throat> They're going to end up going to the guy on the corner again. There mm-hmm. will. I, I don't see you know, a completely eliminating market. I do see drops in um incarcerations and market share for outright cartels if you did but then again you have a whole nother problem it's like okay what do we just give fentanyl to everybody or so you just actually you actually just mentioned an interesting thing a few minutes ago you said as long as there's cash what if what if we move to a position a time and it's i think it's around the corner at least in the united states what if we move to a time in the next 10 years where people don't have cash, the, every, where every transaction is always tracked? Um, if we get to that 1984 uh, Big Brother moment, which and not even for that, just because mm-hmm. that's probably where we're going, uh, that will definitely change the landscape of um, illicit and legitimate I guess it'll make it. I guess it'll make it so cybercrime becomes the becomes the new. In other words, the ability to be able to put credits, to be able to do illicit transactions, or the uh, transactions that won't be tracked, will all of a sudden become very powerful. So cybercrime the, the, the top of the organized food chain at that time will be whomever's figured out how to do that, mm-hmm. how to hack the system, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That's who will be next there. Maybe that's the ultimate answer. Who's going to be able to do it when we're all 
entirely um, cyber right. economic system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'll do it too because uh, most is still done in a real physical, tangible cash method. You know what's pretty amazing to me, and I should, I, now I feel guilty, I should really let you go, but just between you and me and I guess the people, um, what's shocking to me is that I already, I'm, I, we're incredibly well-tracked. Like whenever somebody says, was so-and-so at this meeting? I don't know, was his phone there? Because they can track any phone. They track phones all the time. Your phone is always being tracked. That's how you get the text messages that come right. to your phone. It's because your, your phone is always in communication with the cell towers, right? So there's no, no people on this planet can meet without their, unless they leave their cell phones someplace else and then go someplace else where their, right. their cell phone isn't, you know? Not to mention the fact that, that um, every email is tracked. Every, so it's interesting to me that when people say that organized crime can't be stopped, it's like, or, or, or you can't track this stuff. No, no, you can. You have to, you'd have to choose to do it. And it may be the case that I'm never the intersection between government and organized crime. If I was, see, I am, I do have a degree in economics and I have to tell you, I would actually buy politicians because I figured they can't, they can't cost that much. <laughs> um, I, I find, okay. I, I, I'm glad you said this because I did want to throw this in so mm -hmm. everybody can really grasp mm -hmm. how this works. Um, and I think this came out of an economics book once. Mm -hmm. It was it was specifically talking about La Cosa Nostra, the American mafia at the time. But here is pretty much the quote: "Cosa Nostra must work within society, not openly against it. It must maintain equilibrium. In other words, for." everybody to make money and not get in trouble there's got to be this parallel it's when there's spikes that there are problems in that in that uh world you would have to have some political backing you would have to have uh, you know you have to be a part of society in fact it's almost like a lesson for would-be criminals you better kind of roll with society because if you don't, that's when you get caught. Okay. Uh, Dillinger, so if you're going to be a drug cartel, you better pay your taxes. Yeah. So well, or at least have a lot of, or help a lot of people get elected or, mm -hmm. or the, know the owner of the bank where you're hiding the money. Mm -hmm. But it is in, in all seriousness, that's that equilibrium. When the mob in America was at its um, heyday, as I call it, it was because, Everyone was on board, good, bad, or evil. However you look at it, it's because there was an equilibrium. So if you really want to get rid of this stuff too, you've got to get corruption out of it. And again, it goes back to, I don't care who you are. Power and money corrupts. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It's hard to get away from that. It's true. Well, and I think that that's an, I think that's a very important insight that, that, when you have politicians that can be bought, when you have police forces that can be bought, when you when it only costs a, the mordida in Mexico, the ability or, or in, in Latin America and other places around the world, they just call it a different name. The right. little bribes that get you through checkpoints, those things corrupt the society because all of a sudden the laws don't apply, and if they aren't if they're not prosecuted, then basically you're saying you don't want to have 
you, you're basically saying you want to have this underground economy, which translates into, you know, a, a significantly more crime. You're just opening the door to, and making it a lot more profitable to be a criminal rather than right. somebody that obeys the rules and plays by the rules. But and when, when you look at even a government, say, I mean, look at Afghanistan and just, mm -hmm. just as an example, if you destroy all their opium fields, you are, you are destroying an entire country's, a big part of their economy. Again, good, bad, or however you want to look at it, but that's a fact that a government may not say outright, but they're looking at those factors. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's same Colombia. All right, wipe out all the coca leaves. All right, but you're also going to have a problem down the road then when you're destroying. Um, again, it's just... Mm -hmm. It's the cash crop. It's the only cash crop they got. And if you destroy right. it, then what happens? And is opium really that bad? And if maybe, you know, and there are countries around the world where they have legalized it. There's some very, very high functioning economies where they have legalized prostitution and they have legalized drugs and they have a lower rate of crime. If you, if you, assuming that you don't consider those things crime. And you also have to have in place something to deal with the bad parts of it. Look right. at our opium epidemic now, where you can't even catch up to deal with the 14-year-old kids who got hooked on their mom and dad's oxys that you can't get anymore because those are impossible to get. So they go get the dollar bag of heroin. What mm -hmm. the hell's happened is we're creating one problem from trying to solve another. We haven't got it right yet. We haven't got it right. You know, so I want to thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview. And what I, you know, I, I think I, <laughs> I keep trying to sell you on Zoom, and I, <laughs> but it really is the case. I, um, I hope you, you have oh, a lot, like to, you have you have a lot to say, and a lot of interesting things to say. And I kind of wish that you would decide to launch a podcast or decide to launch a video series. And I think even just doing inter interviewing people that have ha that have dealt with. Um, they can share their insights as a law enforcement agent in terms of work of dealing with organized crime or dealing with people who knew criminals. It's my point is there's not a lot of people in a position to do that. There's not a lot of people who are in a position to tell those kinds of stories or that people will trust to tell those kinds of stories. And as you see, it's a pretty straightforward gig, you know, but I'm just saying, I, I I've seen the work that you do. It's really beautiful. And I can oh, see the work man. and the time that you put into it, but but I also, I have the sense that you're kind of an archivist and a kind of a historian. And I think these people that, that can tell these stories are dying. So if you don't capture them, you're not going to, you know. I try. The stories are going to be gone, you know. And even when they're dead, history always, uh, um, there's always a little bit. It never gives us everything at once. That's <laughs> uh, why I love what I do, either contemporary or the stuff I dig into in the past. But uh, yeah, I, and thank you very much, all of you who mm -hmm. listen to my rants there's, and vagueness. There's a bunch of this now, and then there's gonna be, there'll be a bunch more that watch it later. Sometimes people sign up for events, and then they listen to them. Well, um, I'm, I'm like, without words about it. I still get, like, all giddy, like that little kid that, I don't know. But, no, I, I hope somebody can get something out of this. Mm -hmm. um, and if any other help, you know, feel free to hit me up on the website and ask yeah. if there's something I wasn't clear on. You know, actually, so that uh, that's probably the um, the last and most important question. Can um, do you want to tell people your website address, and then also do you want to provide them with your email address or a way for them to contact you? Um, sure. For anyone interested, my website is ganglandlegends.com. Mm -hmm. uh, on so other social media, it's just 
at gangland legend, non-plural. Uh, you can find me there everywhere. Um, I, my website is ganglandpublicity at Gmail. It's on my website though. I have makes it pretty easy to get a hold of me. I'm actually pretty approachable. So, um, if I don't get back to you and you have a question, just don't worry. I, I always do. They'll email you again. These people are producers. So the producers and writers out here are pretty know how yeah, to I'm all, back from Yeah, I'm, I'm glad too. If it's only because I get sidetracked or I'm ADHD for a moment, but I always do get. I I don't have um, you know, people doing it for me. I read all my own emails and messages. So if there's anything I wasn't clear on, feel free to ask. Mm -hmm. And also, there's a um, if if. Should if people want to read that murder ink book, mm -hmm. is it on your website or is it only on Amazon? It is. I have copies on there that I'll sign if somebody wants to get them directly from me. Cool. And Amazon, Barnes and Noble, they mm -hmm. have them. Uh, sometimes little local bookstores have them. I'll get people sometimes will write me from wherever and say, "Look what I found." Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, murder ink uh, is pretty much readily available. Um, yeah, I'm pretty proud of that one too. Yeah, you made it sound pretty good though. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, I try to do, it's, it's more anecdotal. Uh, like I, I really wanted to paint the pictures of these guys and their individual things. Again, what makes people tick um, and show you there's three sides to every story. Let others judge. Um, oh, and I do a comic book series on Lucky Luciano. Look, I brought true crime the comic. tales of Lucky and I'm really excited about that. because Actually, that's probably a really good place for it to go because I think – you know, um, there's a lot of people that younger younger people that uh, romanticize violence, and it's it's good for them to understand the economics behind it. It's good for them to understand the kind of people that actually do this for a living and kind of where they end up. It's not all romantic. There are romantic elements. I'm not going to mm -hmm. lie about that. There are, but it's also there's only a few endings to most of these stories. So anybody they don't usually die in bed, do they? They yeah. don't die in bed. It's, uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. But no, thank you so cool. much. And everybody. Thank you very much. And I'm going to edit this up. Um, and then with your permission, I'll make it available for you to approve. And then when you say it's okay, I'll make it available through my website. And I'll, um, I'll continue to um, push it uh, or tell people about it going forward. And then if I'll recommend strongly that if people want to, um, are doing work about organized crime and they want to be able to get some feedback from you, I think your feedback and your notes um, will be of interest. And if you say something's good, it'll probably um, be of interest to people who are funding projects because they'll go, okay, so this guy know what he, knows what he's talking about. This is accurate. It's not going to be the case that this documentary is going to be, you know, it's going to be. That's right. Like I said, I suck at everything except this. So that's, <laughs> yeah, I try. It's, it's my thing. I, if I get something wrong, I fix it. That's how I am. Uh, so if I can be of help to anybody, let me know. Well, I'll do my best to make sure, you know, I tell people about you all the time. Thank you very much for taking the time to meet with us tonight, and I hope you have a most excellent evening. I guess you're on the East Coast, right? Yep. There you go. Pittsburgh, PA. All right. Thank you, Nancy, uh -huh. and everybody who listened in. Talk to you later, man. Bye. Bye.